You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief. For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Thank you, Carissa, for reading that. Good morning. In 2006, the Cardinals went to the World Series against the Detroit, Detroit Tigers. And I try to talk about this series as much as possible around Jason because he is a Detroit fan, uh, Pastor Jason here. And so he loves the Tigers. He loves the Lions. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's been like 33 years since the Tigers have won the World Series. And, uh, and the Lions never have. So this is great, right? Uh, 2006... Cardinals go, and it only took them five games to win, and it turns out uh, that my dad had two tickets to game five. Actually, it was game four, but long story short, that one got rained out, and whoever had game four tickets got to go to the fifth game, and so um, he was supposed to go with the client who, who backed out, and so he had this one extra ticket. There was just one problem, one extra ticket and two sons. You see it see right here. There's me, and there's, there's my brother, both big Cardinals fans. Who's my dad going to take to the Cardinals game? The game that they could possibly win the series with. They were up 3-1. All right? Just needed one win. Now, I like to believe that any good parent doesn't show favorites, but my dad picked me. So, I don't know. I like to think that maybe I'm his favorite, you know, or at least I was back then. And, uh, and, and that's, the, that's the story that my brother got. And certainly, um, you know, we, we could expect what, what happened and what, what came next is that uh, the Cardinals won. It was literally, I mean, to this day, is one of the best nights of my entire life. Uh, and I think my dad, too. It was just this incredible, awesome experience uh, being at the game when they win. And, uh, and we get home, and my brother, uh, the, the tension that was between us for so long, and, and him and my dad, and our family was just, uh, I mean, really, I, don't, I haven't brought this up for a while. You know, I mean, it's been 11 years now, but I brought it up three or four years ago, and it's still a sensitive subject. Like, because uh, I got picked, and he didn't. And so from my brother's point of view, I can see where he's coming from. Uh, he's the older brother. I'm the youngest, all right? So the youngest, of course, always gets spoiled, right? And um, he was older, uh, so he deserves it as the older son. You know, in his view, he was a bigger Cardinals fan, which is also probably true. He would have appreciated it more than me, also probably true. So I don't have many great arguments other than that uh, my parents had just moved me to Columbia, uh, and I didn't have any friends at that point in time. And so that, you know, but, but at the end of the day, my brother probably reser- uh, deserved it better than I did. And so all I could be was grateful, not entitled, uh, just, just grateful. I use this analogy this morning to help explain how it is that God chooses us. And I know no analogy is perfect, but we're going to stick with it, okay? 
How is it that God chooses us? The reality is that in the world, God has chosen some and not others. God has chosen some and not others. And when I use this language of chosen, quote unquote chosen, what I mean is that God has chosen to reveal himself in special ways to some and not others. What I mean is God has chosen to love some people in a very particular way, in ways that he has not loved others. God's chosen to reveal his truth to some and not others. God has chosen to bless some people in this world uh, more than others, even within the church, even uh, between our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The degree to which God blesses and reveals himself um, is quite a, a wide variance, right? I mean, think of Paul, who like literally got to see the risen Jesus right in front of him, like knocked off his horse in this amazing revelation. And then again and again, he talks about how he would see and meet Christ. And like, does that, has that happened to any of you? No, it was a very, well, maybe it has. I don't want to assume that. But uh, it was a very particular blessing. And then, and then even more than that is that God's choice to choose, to bless, to reveal himself, etc., um, is completely unmerited. It is completely grace. It is undeserved which means that any uh, human, man-made method of determining uh, why it is or how it is that God has uh, chosen you know, me instead of you or her instead of him or whatever is just completely useless and it's irrelevant because it's by God's own purposes and it's, it's by grace and grace alone. We don't deserve it. Just like I didn't deserve to get that ticket and yet I was chosen. So, Nowhere is this fact more clearly demonstrated than through the people of Israel. And this is what Paul is talking about. We're going to go back to those verses that we read here at the very beginning in in chapter 9. We're going to read verses, uh, I believe it's 3 and 4. Yeah. Listen to what Paul says about the people of Israel. He says, They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. Okay, he's talking about the Israelites all, all the way back to the beginning of uh, like Abraham and all of his descendants. He says, God revealed his glory to them. Pause for a second. God revealed his glory to them. What's he saying? Um, think about the Old Testament. Let's look at the story of Exodus for, for a moment. It's 400,000 Israelites that have been enslaved in Egypt for a long time. They see God come in and through Moses, uh, these, these 10 plagues basically take out <laughs> the people of Israel, and just rain down on them. And Moses predicts this, and through him, it happens. And they witness this. And even the Passover, where, where the, um, the oldest son of every family in Egypt dies, but it passes over, that spirit of death passes over every single Israelite family. They are the people who got to walk through the middle of the Dead Sea. The Red Sea, sorry. Walk through the middle of the Red Sea, literally see it parted. And saved just in the nick of time from the Egyptian army. They are the people that for 40 years walked around in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, um, seeing God revealed to them as a cloud by day and fire by night. And this miraculous bread would fall from heaven every morning they would wake up and there would be the perfect amount of food for them to eat. For 40 years, God provided for them in this way. I mean, just God... God's glory was revealed to these people in a way that 
He revealed himself to no other people on the face of this earth, only to this small little insignificant nation in the ancient Near East called Israel. Let's read on. He made covenants with them and he gave them his law, right? He didn't give his law or his covenants to anyone else. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him. Think about that. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him in a world that was filled with all of these pagan gods. They were one of the only monotheistic, uh, meaning, meaning worship one God people in, their, in, in the entire world at that time. So he gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And, and here's where it all culminates, is that Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that... Um, their history, the, the, the law and the prophets and seeing the glory of God and receiving God's promises and whatever, it all, God told them, you need to be expecting a Messiah that's going to come from your people and he's going to be your savior. He's going to be the savior of the world and they've, they're expecting this for thousands of years and then it happens. This man, Jesus Christ, whom God's spirit indwells, comes and is born in Nazareth. Bethlehem, sorry, born in Bethlehem lives in Nazareth, in Israel, the savior of the world, born in Israel. And in fact, even Jesus himself says that his earthly ministry was to the Jews. All right, he ministers first to the Jews. And here's the thing that's really upsetting is that these people who have been so blessed by God, who have been um, chosen specifically by God, have rejected him. They've turned away from him again and again and again and again. They've rebelled. And I don't know if you feel it yet. I don't know if you felt it before, but this idea that God chose some and that he chooses some and not others is scandalous. It's offensive. This idea in theology is actually known uh, to be called the scandal of particularity. That means that God, uh, particular, he chooses particular people in particular times and places and whatever to, to reveal himself to. He chooses. He makes a choice and it's undeserved and it's scandalous and it's offensive because these people didn't deserve it. Israel did not deserve to be chosen, clearly. And so we cry out, there had to have been others more deserving. There had to have been others more deserving. And yet it was Israel who he chose and no one else. Why? Why is that the case? So this morning as we talk about why, I want you to understand that that this question is not insignificant. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, why does it matter to me why Israel Uh, was chosen thousands of years ago or whatever. It matters to you because we are the new Israel. God chose Israel for the same reason that he chooses us. To use Paul's words, we are the people whom God has revealed himself to. We are the people to whom God has entrusted his, his covenant and his promises and his law, right? And the law didn't go away. The law is now on our hearts, We are the people to whom God has revealed himself. We are the people to whom Christ has come and offered salvation. And and we can't act 
Like we are, not, we are not somehow more blessed than others in the world to know what we know. We are chosen, and it is by grace and grace alone. So understanding why God chose us then is the beginning. It is the beginning of living a life of humility, of gratitude, of faith, and a purpose, understanding why did God choose me, right? It's the beginning of all of that. And it's the beginning of actually understanding and sharing the very heart of God for the world. And so we're going to talk about these things. Why did God choose us? Like I said, there's something that seems to be inherently unjust and unfair about a God who does not bless people equally. So it seems. And so we're going to read these verses, and I think it's going to help to describe it. It's in verses 10 uh, through 13 of chapter 9, and it's not going to be on the screen, so just listen real quick. Rebecca, when Isaac married Rebecca, right? Isaac was Abraham's son to whom the promise was through. And he says, when Isaac married Rebecca, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, God says, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau, or I rejected Esau. Now, I'll stop there for a second. When we read this, um, depending on what your translation says, some say, I love Jacob, I, I hated Esau. Those, those are words that are in scripture, and God literally is saying like, like one baby I loved and I hated, but don't, don't get offended by those words, okay? Because um, I want you to know when you read that, it is widely agreed among scholars and whatever, theologians, blah, 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 is that in the, in the Old Testament and in these times, um, love-hate was language they used for covenant, right? Love is, when you love someone, it's you, you enter into covenant with them and you bless them because of that covenant. And, and hatred was just, to hate was simply a means of God saying, I didn't enter into a covenant with Esau. Because that's really important. Because some people, I mean, for centuries, people have been very turned away by that language in scripture. And it's simply God is saying here, I chose one and not the other. And I chose them when they were in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, okay? And then Paul writes in parentheses here, he's, um, this message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. So here's a distinction. Here's why it's not, uh, I'm, I'm going to help you understand how it is that God choosing some and not others is not unfair or unjust. And I had to, it took me some time to kind of think, how because it didn't make sense to me at first either. So I hope, this, I hope this helps clear it up. Imagine that I have a group of five friends, five good, close friends. There's two scenarios. In the first scenario, I tell my friends, I, I need to move into a new house. And if you come and help me, and you do well, I'm going to buy you all lunch. And so all five friends, they come and help me. They do a great job. And when it's all done, I only buy one of them lunch and leave the other four hanging. In that situation, clearly, it was unfair that I bought one lunch and not the other four. We had a deal going here, right? There was something that they earned. And they deserved, I mean, they really did deserve that lunch that I had promised to them. Okay, so that's scenario one. That's clear that that's unfair. Scenario two we all go out to lunch together, the five of us, under the usual assumption that we buy our own meals. When the meal is over, I have this 
tug on my heart just to, to bless my one friend. No particular reason, I don't know. But so I buy lunch for one of them and not the other four. Now, there may be something in that situation that you say is unfair or unjust, but I'm telling you, it's not. In, in, in no way is scenario two unfair or unjust. It might be socially awkward to buy lunch for one and not the other four, but, it, but how is it unjust? How is it unfair? There's, there's no deal in place. No one is deserving of anything more than the other. In fact, I don't love any of them more than the other. I just, I just want to bless one. Am I not entitled just to, just to bless one? And so I do. Now, as long as we consider our situation and our, our uh, relationship with God to be uh, like the first scenario, as if anything can be earned, as if we can deserve anything, he will always appear to be unjust. His choosing some and not others will always appear to be unjust, as long as we think that we can earn something or that we deserve anything. But when we truly understand that he knows that he owes no one anything, it becomes clear that his blessing, that his choosing is purely out of love. It is undeserved grace, period. So the first reason that God chose you, me, us, is because of his undying love for you, me, us. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the rest of the world. Simply means he loves you and me and us. That's reason number one. And when this becomes our reality, I mean really, really becomes our reality that God chose us, that he blessed us, that God loves us, it changes everything. There's nothing we can do but be humbled and to be and to be grateful, and it's a, it's a shame that it's a shame to me that, that children grow up in in school uh, being told that if they share candy with a friend, they have to share it with the whole class. You know, it, and I get it, teachers. You know, you don't want there to be mayhem in the classroom or whatever. But but why is it that why is it that, that a kid can't just just share a Jolly Rancher with a girl he thinks is cute or whatever, and just um, and not have to worry about the whole class screaming? That's unfair. We should be teaching our kids. That's not unfair. You didn't deserve Jolly Rand. He doesn't have, he's not obligated to give you this candy. He just blessed one person. You know, and, and we live in this, in this culture that is just like overly entitled. And it's not just our youth. It is so far beyond. It is, it is every age across the spectrum. It, it, it's everyone. We, we are just inundated with um, seeing people who have things that we don't have, whether it's tangible things or intangible things or whatever. And, and there's something inside of us that says that I deserve that too. And so we, we feel like we deserve to have comfort and, and pleasure, however it comes. We see people um, even in the church that have uh, maybe natural uh, gifts or talents or skills or whatever that, that God's given them or whatever, and, and there's just this, I mean, I, God, why didn't God give me that? I want that gift, not mine. 
And there's just this, this attitude that, that is so easy to get caught up in. I'm there all the time and just like that this ingratitude for all that we have. And only when we understand the simple fact in life that God um, owes us nothing can we begin to see how much he has truly blessed us and how much he has truly loved us. So God chose us because he loves us. We got that down. So still, why not others? On the surface level, it may appear as favoritism. How can I believe, right, that, um, that if God loves us all equally, that he would just bless some and not others? And where my analogy falls apart of buying lunch for friends is that, is that God's not limited to resources. Maybe I'm broke. You know, God could buy lunch for everyone. Um, using the analogy of the Cardinals game, my dad had one ticket. God could buy the whole Bush Stadium. You know, it's not, it's not like he's limited. He could share blessings equally among everyone. How is this not favoritism? Well, we're going to read why. And it goes all the way back to one of God's very first promises in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So um, if you would put those on the screen, great. This is God to Abraham. This is the first promise God made to Abraham, first command too. He says, uh, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's key. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, let's camp out here for a minute. What God says to Abraham is, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, did you hear that? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I love the way that Jason puts this in his book. He said that God's first promise to Abraham does not constrict his promise to one or to a few, but to work through those who are chosen, those who he made the promises to, to bless the entirety of the world. See how God's plan is working out. You ever wonder like what it means to like bless a house, like an inanimate object, or to, to bless a person, or we pray God to, to bless certain people, places, things, whatever. What purpose of that is when, when God blesses someone or something, it is so that that person, place, thing, whatever, becomes a blessing becomes a blessing through which people, his creation, is blessed. And that's the amazing thing, is that God chose us, yes, because of his undying love for us, you got that part, but, but he chose us even more because of his undying love for the world. That's how God's chosen to work. And now the believers in Rome um, that, that Paul is writing to here in the scriptures, 9 through 11, is um, they seem to have some prejudices, maybe even like racism we're getting or whatever against um, the, Jew, the ethnic Jews, all right? So Paul here, he's writing, um, he's writing to, the, to the Gentile believers specifically who are looking at the non-believing Jews, those Jews who have not yet come to faith in Christ. And what they're seeing is this, um, this 
people who was closest to the promises of God and yet who, who rejected God. And it seems to them as if God has rejected or is done with those Jewish people. And what type of behavior or mindsets they, they had, we don't know specifically, but clearly there's, there's something going on here. But Paul says, he says in, in chapter 11, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you don't become prideful. I want you to understand what's really going on here. And he acknowledges the fact, he acknowledges the fact that yes, Israel was incredibly blessed, and yes, they were chosen, um, and yes, they rebelled, and God has cut them off from the family tree of Abraham. He makes that very clear. They are no longer sons and daughters of, of his promise, at least in, in this immediate uh, sense. He acknowledges that. But, he says, I want you to understand this mystery. And he goes on in chapter 11 to say this. He says, once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. That's the secret truth. That's the mystery. That, that is how God is working in this world. And he says, for God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that he could have mercy on everyone. God blessed us so that we might be his blessing in the world. God loved us so that we might be his love in the world. God made himself known to us so that we might make him known to the world. That's the reason God reconciled us, you and me, to himself so that we might be ministers of his reconciliation. And when we, when we reject the world, we reject the, the calling that God has placed on our lives as his chosen people. And when we reject that calling that God has placed on our lives as his chosen people, we reject the world. And that's the mindset that Paul is trying to help the Israelites see here is that we can't we can't reject the world. That God's very reason for choosing you was so that you might be a blessing. Now, Bob shared this quote with me last week that I just can't get out of my head. We're going to throw it up on the screen. Is, uh, can our type of church change this kind of world? Think about that for a second. Can our type of church change this kind of world? The reality is that the existence of the local church is for nothing other than the transformation of the world. It's our mission statement even. Making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world or transforming the world by making disciples of Jesus Christ. One or the other, you know. Um, I can never remember which, which one is ours and which is the Methodist churches, but, um, but you get the point. And so, so we must ask ourselves this question is, can our type of church change this kind of world? And I don't know what happens in you when you hear that question, but when I heard this question, the reason it, it struck me is because I, I had like forgotten about the fact that we existed to change the world. I'm like, it's in our mission statement, but it just reminds me of how apathetic I am um, to the real mission, to the very reason for which God has called me and redeemed me and blessed me so much more than others in the world. 
And it hurt a little bit. It stung, but I think it should. And so it can be easy to get caught up in just doing church and in just doing life and just um, forgetting about the reason and the purpose for which we live in Christ. The reality is we... Uh, Bob, Bob wrote this part of the sermon, okay? So this is from, from him as much as me. We are, we are not currently the type of church that can change this kind of world. Um, not yet. We're doing some really good things here at Schweitzer, and we're moving in the right direction. But this world is so broken, so messed up. The only type of church that can change this type of world is, is that which has the very heart of God. It's a heart that, that feels what God feels about the brokenness of the world. It's a heart that never gives up on any person or any type of, of people group that seem like God has, has passed over. Are there people who you've deemed as just like unsavable? I know there, there are me. I'm guilty of that. It's the heart of Paul who says about his Jews, he says, my heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. Bitter sorrow and unending grief. And he says, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ if that would save them. And who does that sound like to you? Willing to, to bear the curse, to be cursed for the salvation of others. That's, a very, that's, that's Christ. Paul is speaking like Christ, it's, it's the heart of Jesus who wept over the city of Jerusalem. I mean, wept over the brokenness. It's, it's the heart of Jesus who looked over the crowds and had compassion on them. It's the heart of the Father who gave up his only son not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And the heart of God is broken over the brokenness in our world. Is broken. And I think at, at times the best I can do is, uh, is I, I complain about it. If I even acknowledge it at all, if I'm not numb to it or unaffected or desensitized like I so often am, then I, I simply I see what's wrong and I, and I complain. And I think we do too much complaining. Honestly, we cast judgments on people and, and we condemn people and we, we say things like, um, I hope he gets what he deserves, forgetting that we didn't get, forget that we didn't get what we deserved. We say things like, that's just how it is. Like the world's just that way and it can't change because we forget the fact that God changed us. We haven't been changed by God in a while. We have a tough time being kind to people who are not kind to us because we forget how kind God has been to us. We have a tough time forgiving because we forget how God's forgiven us. I mean, we just, we, that first love, you know, when, when God comes into your life and he just changes everything and it's like, it's that new relationship, that honeymoon phase is awesome. It fades away pretty quickly, doesn't it? And I'm telling you, if, if it's been a while since you've known the love of God, my prayer for you this morning 
maybe it's the first time, maybe it's the thousandth time, is that, is that we all can know God's love for us this morning in a new and rich and real way, and that we can pursue that, and that we can live in that, and we can just live lives of, of sheer gratitude, knowing that we deserve nothing, yet God has given us so much, and it's only when, it's only when we live that type of life that we will start to have the heart of God for the world. So this morning, um, we're going to end here with, with communion and, and some prayer. Um, if the servants for communion would come up, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Um, this is a time, communion is a time of, certainly of confession. Yeah, if you would just stand here and here. That'd be great. Um, certainly a time of confession, but it's also a time of great celebration, of thanksgiving and of praise. Um, it's a time where, where Jesus offers himself up. He offers uh, his body, and this is not just the body that was broken on the cross for us, all right? This is a body that holds us all together. I'm not going to break this in front of us right here right now. It holds us all together in unity. It's a body that was risen from the grave that we can be a part of. It's the blood that was poured out for us in love and that we can come together every Sunday and in remembrance of him give thanks I mean, really give thanks. I, I ask you this morning that if and when you come forward to partake in this sacrament, that you treat it with such humble gratitude and joy and thanksgiving as you possibly can. And I'm going to seek to do the same. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for all that you have done for us and continue to do for us. And I pray that you pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and of juice and, and help us, God, to um, be present with you in this moment. I, I, God, we need a fresh experience with you. I just, we need this. We want to be the type of church that can change this kind of world. Um, and yet, I don't know how badly we really want, you know, so, so God, with... In every way we know how, we just ask and we pray that you uh, change these hearts of stone into hearts of love alone. And that what comes from us is nothing but your, your very own heart and your very own love for the world. Make us into that which you redeemed us to be. And it's in Christ's name we pray and we thank you. Amen.